Welcome to Keeping Up With Data. Keeping Up With Data is the podcast that keeps data enthusiasts up to speed with what is happening in the data world. We bring in the leading minds from the data industry to talk all things career, news, embarrassing stories, failures and successes. So something really important for us here at Precision Sourcing is mental health. It's something we've been focused on a lot over the last year or so. And we're lucky enough to have partnered with the Black Dog Institute. And we're going to be doing a lot of events with them this year. A lot of our events, money will be going towards them. And they're out there aiming to create a mentally healthier world for everyone. So if you wish to support the cause, please donate via the link in the bio on this podcast. And you'll be seeing a lot more information about Black Dog over the next year. Welcome once again to a new episode of Keeping Up With Data. Myself, Joel Robinstein. I'm joined by my colleague, Sean Bray. And today we've got Simon Molnar on with us. Simon, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. No worries, mate. Well, as we always do at the beginning of these podcasts, I won't tell everyone who you are. If you could introduce yourself in your own words, whichever way you want to do it, it'd be great to hear. Yeah, um, I'm Simon Molnar, um, retail and tech geek, um, massive data geek, which I guess makes sense being on the show. Um, I've always kind of had this fascination and obsession with data, just reading data, diving into data, doing whatever I can with data. And data's played a big part of my life, like personally and professionally. Um, personally, um, I'm a big sports fan and I'll just dive into whatever data I can find um, to give me any kind of edge possible um, when I'm playing any kind of fantasy leagues. Nice. Um, and from a professional perspective, I don't think I've ever really made a business decision that didn't have a data point to lead the way or back it up. Um, so I was brought up on retail and on jewellery. So my mm. parents had a, a brick and mortar jewellery store in Sydney CBD for over 30 years. So it was kind of in my blood, retail. Mm -hmm. And I started um, selling their jewellery online, started selling it on eBay. And then my brother and I took that eBay business into a standalone e-com website and had to kind of teach myself everything e-com fulfillment warehousing marketing everything <laughs> um it was all it was a steep there were a few steep learning curves in my life that was definitely one of them and i always said i just i never knew the first thing about jewelry mm. i just knew how to read data and i knew how to put the right product in front of the right person at the right time so i used data with my digital marketing i used data from an seo perspective I used data from a product sourcing perspective. So right. everything was just, what are my customers looking for? Do I have that product? Yes, great. How do I either put some spend behind it or make sure it rents on Google? No, all right, I need to go and find the product. So nice. I guess that's kind of a long, long way yeah, yeah. to describe myself. Um, but uh, yeah, just, um, yeah, I think all my mates know that and my team know that I spend all day, every day in spreadsheets, Google Sheets, <laughs> any, any kind of structured data I can. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty kind of data obsessed. Nice. So we've got a lot to unpack from what <laughs> you just said. <laughs> and a lot to get to today. So some of the topics I want to hit on, and I'll just kind of say what we're going to talk about to make sure I don't forget myself as well. Obviously starting quite young and your family and that influence on you, because I know you mentioned there, obviously your family's business and I guess the support of your, your parents to take that business online as well. It'd be great to dig into that and what that looked like. Um, obviously then you know, building up after pay with your brother as well. Like that's just, you know, something that we have to hit on. Definitely want to hit on the fantasy sports because no matter what I do, I'm still rubbish at every single fantasy sport that I play. So I'm going to need a little bit of information on that. And also I'd love to obviously dive into flagship, your, your current business that you're going a bit of congratulations I hear as well. This yeah. is last month, the seed funding just came through. Is that right? Yeah. Thank you. It's uh, 
it was a slog, but we got there. Yeah, nice. Okay, well, we'll dig into all of that. Um, and Sean, obviously, will add a little bit of your flavor along the way as well, mate, especially when we're getting into some of the data stuff, um, which I know you've been talking to Simon about. But let's start at the beginning, if that's all right. So your parents, brick and mortar, jewelry store, like what kind of spurred you on to kind of, was it Ice Online, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, like how did that all come about? How did you get to it? Yeah, so when I was 16, I was in year 11, um, I used to work weekends. I'd say work, it was quite loosely work. I would stand in my jewelry, in my parents' store and I would just mount the Pandora box nice. uh, because it sold itself. Yeah. Um, and did you make commission by selling? Or? I, I didn't. Um, I think because I spent more time sleeping on the job than eating <laughs> than I did actually selling. So nice. I think any commission that I made, I think my parents lost money having me in the store. But that's a <laughs> story. At least they knew what they, you were doing though, on the weekend. E- exactly. That's yeah. true. <laughs> um, so my little party trick that I had was whenever, I mean, Pandora was quite big at the time. And I would mm. see someone wearing a Pandora bracelet. And I would say, hey, you got a Pandora bracelet? And they'd be like, oh, I don't know. And I'd explain the whole um, parents have a jewelry store thing. And one of the people that I did that with was um, was my math teacher. Mm. And I was like, oh, you got a Pandora brace? And she's like, yeah, you know, I explained it. And I, she said, can you get me a discount? I was like, yeah, um, I'll give you 20% off. You give me an A and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Why not? <laughs> and what ended up happening was um, she obviously started to realise that she could now sell to her friends at, at a smaller discount and take her own little clip. Oh, so it's an MLM? Uh, Multi-level marketing e- Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I would come to class five, ten minutes early, yeah. she'd give me a purchase order, I would take that home, give it to my parents, their fulfillment. I was purely the middleman. Nice. I would bring product in and would and um had a little kind of side business there. But I started to we see that's some math teacher to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's be honest. It's fair play to her. And I was like I mean I was sixteen years old, mate sixteen year old making some pretty um decent decent pocket money yeah and um this was a time when ebay was was still in somewhat of an infancy but it was still it was quite prominent mm-hmm. um and i was like well, all right well if i can sell through my math teacher maybe i can sell on ebay as well so I started listing on ebay started selling um it was doing pretty well and then i was going into my hsc year so my parents wanted to be focused on my studies so i handed the keys over to my brother and it was funny when i gave him the when i gave all the login details Every time he'd log into PayPal, he'd be like, hey, we're getting this pop-up. I'm like, yeah, you just click ignore, click ignore. <laughs> it turns out that pop-up was like me wanting to verify that I was over 18, which I wasn't. <laughs> and eventually, yeah, and eventually like, we got put on hold and that was a whole other, whole other kind of story. Um, so that's kind of how it all, all started. So I was selling Pandora on eBay, handed the kids over to my brother. I finished HSC and then actually started working for a software company as a software engineer. Uh, while my brother was still doing um, doing the eBay stuff, um, I finished that job um, at a similar time to when my brother had um, decided to take that eBay business into a standalone e-com site. So he found Ice.com, an American mm-hmm. brand, um, over there and brought them over to Australia. Um, and we just started building that together. He focused on, he focused more on the eBay side. I focused more on the website side. And like I said, kind of taught myself whatever, whatever there was to, to know about e-com. Um, we had, I guess, he probably didn't see it as competition. I saw it mm-hmm. as a competition where we started as a 95% eBay business and 5% website. And I was constantly working, trying to build the website 
um, part to, to overtake the eBay side. Um, so, yeah, that's basically, I mean, I guess um, it wasn't necessarily my, my parents' store that we brought online. Sure. We just on their, their suppliers, their, um, their contacts, their network yeah, okay. industry. Um, one of their good friends um, was one of the largest wholesalers of jewelry in, in the country, and he actually ended up being our business partner for quite a while. So we were able to work out of his warehouse and tap into the stock that he had on hand with us nice. actually having to outlay any cash. So um, we had to kind of operate profitably. We didn't have crazy investors. Mm -hmm. We couldn't just burn through cash. If we had a couple subsequent bad months, we'd, we'd go belly up. So oh, right, yeah. um, we, we had to be profitable, taught myself SEO so we could get free traffic, free sales. Um, we drop shipped everything, so we didn't hold any stock. So everything was done in a very controlled, considered way. Nice. Um, yeah, I guess that's kind of the the jewelry story. And so it supported parents at sixteen to just crack on with it as well. Yeah, I mean, my my mum driving driving to school always used to say to me, um, "I don't care if you want to be a, a garbage man, I just don't want that to be your only option." Like she said, if sure. that's what you want to do, I'll support you. And I guess. Um, in hindsight, that was kind of what, what gave me the confidence and, and that empowerment to guide my own journey. There were obviously a lot of outside noises. I had grandparents who were a little bit more old school. Yeah, conservative, who, yeah. Who kind of say, you need to go get the piece of paper, go through the normal normal steps. Yeah. That just wasn't me. Um, I didn't, I didn't. Um, I mean, I, I enjoyed school, but um, towards the end of school, I I already knew what I wanted to do. I just wanted to get out of school to get on with my life. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to go to uni. I didn't want to go what like go through a couple of years of my life getting this piece of paper. I just wanted to start getting my hands dirty and, and start doing things. And, and my parents were fully supportive um, nice. in, in that journey, in that decision. Well, and then that flipped into what we all know is Afterpay now, right? You and your brother? Yeah. So a um, couple of years into, into the ICE journey, I think we... So, I think the first sale we made on ICE was October 2012. And then I think the first Afterpay transaction on our website was October 2014. So I think like nearly two years yeah, okay. um, to the day. And that was just because people were just getting to the end of the sale and going, oh, not so sure? Yeah. So, I mean, it was all like my brother's brainchild, like sure. hearing out for me. Um, I guess with jewellery... Um, it is a much more considered purchase, more expensive purchase. Um, and yeah, there, there were a lot of discussions about, um, about how to make, um, the, the jewelry more affordable. Um, there are actually two products. I, I don't know if this is, um, talked about and at, at all even, <laughs> um, but there are actually two products that, that after they launched with one was pay after delivery. Yep. Um, so you receive your order and you pay for it in full 30 days later. Yeah, I've never heard of that one myself. And the second product was paying for. Mm. Um, and the, it was actually the first product, which I'm pretty sure was the, was the focus product. When Well, that would have made sense for jewellery, right? Because it's scary buying things online. Exactly. Yeah. So you kind of get to touch it, feel it, yeah. know it before, before, you, before you commit to the purchase. Um, and I guess that's kind of where Afterpay came from. Yeah. Pay after. Nick put it on ice. Test, test the waters and everyone was using the pain for no one was using the pay after delivery yeah okay and Nick and Ann very quickly made the decision that sunset the pay after delivery and yeah the pain for um, and then um, they onboarded a couple other retailers but what happened was 
all these customers were contacting us at ICE mm. saying, where else can I use this product? Nice. So I think that was um, the realization for Nick. And I mean, also comparing basket size um, on our, for our own customers of an Asway customer versus a PayPal or a credit card customer to see how much more, I mean, in some cases, some customers were spending triple what they would normally would on an average basket. Wow. Um, just because they could afford to spread it out. Yeah. That was the moment where Nick realized that um, he wanted to just go focus on that mm. exclusively. Um, so he went to kind of go and build Afterpay. I was running ICE. Um, and not long into that kind of journey, I'd probably say it was maybe a year or 18 months um, of kind of running ICE exclusively. Um, I would go work from the Alpha office a couple of days a week, yeah. um, help them out with a couple of data pieces, insights, and um, they'd have a couple of challenges with retailers saying that, I don't know, the, the AOV isn't where it should be, and I would kind of debunk everything that they were saying and just diving into the data. Um, and I, I wasn't ready to make the leap at that point in time sure. to Afterpay. I was with my brother at ICE, and I still wanted to kind of... Uh, Give that a crack. Yeah, and I wanted to still kind of do my own thing um, um, without jumping ship straight away. So um, I actually took a brief role while I was running ICE. So again, to give you context, I come from a tech background. I understand the way things work. Yeah. One of the one of the greatest pieces of advice that someone gave me was that if you can create rules, you can automate. Mm -hmm. So what I looked to do was every little process that I had at ICE, I created rules. And then automated it. And I automated myself out of a job, essentially. Nice. <laughs> to, to the point where I had my mum doing customer service part-time and my warehouse manager shipping orders part-time. Oh, that was Basically, it. All we had. Yeah, okay. Um, and so I still wasn't ready to make the Afterpay leap. Yeah. And an opportunity came up to work directly one-on-one -on -one with a digital marketer who launched Netflix into Australia. Nice. And... Um, and I just learned everything there was to know about digital marketing. And this was at the time when Afterpay had its first 100,000 customers. Mm. I mean, now it's got millions. I don't know how many millions, but oh, sure. it was early, early stages. And I went to Nick and I was like, hey, I've got this cool new skill set yeah. that I want to try out. <laughs> let's, let's, use your, let's use your customers as, as kidding. Yeah. And this, again, was when Facebook advertising was still in its infancy. So there wasn't a lot of competition in the space. You could get really great results. And we were just getting results that were unheard of. Mm. Um, and what I realized very quickly was that this customer base was really highly passionate, a highly engaged customer base. Um, but what I also realized was that there was no one at the company that was actually capable of running all these ads. So so how, how many years into Afterpay were at this point? I think there were probably 20 to 30 people. That yeah, okay. So still pretty small. Still, and, yeah, yeah. Still, I mean... Decently, yeah, still. But, but not hiring specialists for specialist jobs yet. They're still kind of get that generalist vibe going. Yeah, yeah. still very much startup. Everyone wore sure. many hats. Um, so I started working out of the Afterpay office and was doing a lot of the digital marketing stuff. I would say to the marketing team, hey, you should do X, Y, and Z. And they mm. said, well, that's a great idea, but we don't know how to, how to do it. So I jumped cool. and do it. And then um, and then I would say to someone, I wanted, I need to get this, this data point for, I need to get this list of customers so that I could advertise and no one could get me that list of customers. So I realized that there was no one in the company that was actually able to dive into the data and pull data and pull reports and everything like that. So I was basically the only one in the company that had database access. So I was data and digital marketing. Yeah. So I would dive into the data, 
find the customers that we wanted to advertise to, work out the best way to advertise to it. I'd build the audience, run the ad, quantify the ad, and kind of do everything before and after and in between. Um, and that was all pro bono, unpaid. Yeah. Just because I kind of knew it needed, needed to be done. Um, so that was kind of my like start into Afterpay. Um, small team, small, small customer base at the time, but growing quite rapidly. And um, as a man at the time, I would have been like early 20s mm. um, to be able to essentially have a blank canvas to test all my new skills out in the way that I couldn't really get it wrong. Yeah, right. The customer base was so engaged yeah. that you couldn't get bad results. Um, yeah, that was um, that was the the start the start of that journey. It's a bit of a luxury really, isn't it, Sean? Because like a lot of the startups we deal with, they don't have any way of gathering that data. They don't have anyone who's able or willing to do it. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So you definitely fell on some good hands there and obviously created the, the journey and the path where you gone on to flagship then and yeah i mean even at the um in the early days of afterpay i would use data to help the sales team work out which retailers they should be prioritizing yeah because this was the time before facebook got put under the microscope and you could extract a lot of data out of facebook so i was able to see from our customer base which which brands were they most likely to shop at and therefore if we acquire this cut this this retailer I know that this brand is going to have a great experience out of, out of the blocks because our customer base is most most likely to shop there. And then we'd onboard that customer, that customer, that so that retailer would unlock a whole new bunch of customers for us. I'd put that customer list into Facebook and it would tell me the next retailer and the next retailer, the next retailer. Nice. So, um, yeah, kind of coming back to the data, like it's just, there's always method to my madness. Mm. It's always kind of, um, kind of, yeah data driven so you said you come from a tech background but obviously you also mentioned you didn't get the piece of paper so a tech background was just you learning as you went but also not just on the job but you had a passion for it so you'd go and go oh, i want to know how to do that i'm just going to figure it out bang on i, I don't want to compare myself to, to einstein i think like he like to to kind of quote him i'm just passionately curious sure that's basically it i I know this is where I am, this is where I want to get to, how do I do it? I'll kind of back solve and, and work yeah. and get there. There's lots of arguments for the best engineers that are the best self-taught engineers, like you're learning yeah. yourself, they're yeah. the most passionate, they're the ones who just want to do it and do it and yeah. make it themselves. Awesome. And actually, um, I went for a, for a job somewhere else as a software engineer and they started asking me questions and they were asking me more like terminology and sure. theory and the way to do things. I couldn't answer any of the questions. I don't know. I don't know why you do it this way. Yeah, yeah. I just know that it works. Um, so I guess um, I, can't, I guess had I gotten, gotten the qualifications, I would have known. But um, but everything I found was just available on Google. You, this is the problem. I'll Google it. If I've had the problem, there's a good chance there are thousands of other people that have yeah. the same problem. And the great thing about the engineering community is that everyone helps everyone. Yeah, they share a lot, don't they? Exactly. Yeah. What That's, languages were you like? Um, I interest. Yeah. Well, I, I it was I was started in .NET. Mm. That was the the code base that the um, the software was built on at the company I started. Um, but I really developed a passion for SQL. Again, mm. um, I guess yeah. Saying it out loud makes me realize how much of a data geek I actually. Am. <laughs> um, but it's funny at at ICE, I actually um, I missed all of the. Um, I missed writing SQL queries. Right. So what I ended up doing was I took all I I 
built a local SQL database on my computer. Um, I extracted all of our e-com sales. I extracted all of our email data, all of our Facebook data, all of our app Google Analytics data, and piped it all into one central um, data warehouse. And what I was actually able to do on the back of that was I could say, um, what is the lifetime value of a customer who is coming to my website by searching for Michael Claus Rose Gold Watch? So it wasn't just what is the return on investment that I'm getting directly from this keyword. It was actually sure. what is the lifetime value or what brands they're going to purchase next. So I could actually map a customer's entire journey um, because I managed to kind of stitch together a lot of these other peripheral data sources. And you were doing this before people even spoke about yeah. candidate journey and all yeah. the customer journey, all that. Exactly. Yeah, this that was just because I wanted to know. I wanted to yeah. know more about my customers. I wanted to know um, how to maximize revenue. I wanted to know what products I should be getting. And then I realized that there might actually be a product here, but that's where my skill set falls short. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I kind of, I, I could stitch something together, but I could never build something in, in a way that could be productized and sold. Nice. Yeah, so obviously, from what you were saying before as well, like about the engineering community being so willing to share, which is really cool. It's what a lot of people that we speak to get really annoyed about because they'll go for an interview with someone and they'll be like, you need to do these three tests, but with no screens, on paper, and you have to remember it all off the top of your head. Like that, like memory is intelligence, yeah. Yeah. but you're obviously saying there's completely different ways of doing it. It's all resourcing. Um, so... I, I, I taught myself SEO. Mm. So I taught myself how to rank on Google. I, it, I had us outranking Michael Kors if you're searching for Michael Kors watches in Australia. <laughs> um, and what really bugged me about that was that I, I didn't fully understand the repercussions of having a strong ranking page. Mm. Because what happened was I had that one page ranking for Michael Kors watches, Michael Kors rose gold watches, Michael Kors men's watches, silver watches. And it really annoyed me that every single person was coming to this one landing page and I couldn't tailor that landing page to that person. Exactly. Yeah, sure. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to build basically just JavaScript um, that when someone hit a certain product or a brand or um, I would drop a cookie on their website, mm. on, on their browser, and then when they left the website and they came back via the homepage, I would actually tailor that homepage entirely towards what they were searching nice. for beforehand. So I had 14 concurrent homepages running, um, but this was all just Google. It was, I Googled, how do you drop a cookie on a website? And I just did that and then I would drop the cookie, like run the JavaScript to drop the cookie, check the console to check that it's, that it's actually there. And then I'm like, all right, now how do I dynamically change um, uh, an asset on a screen and I kind of like would work through it mm. and everything for me is I'll just make it work for one module and then once I can make it work for one module then I'll copy it out and do it do it for other ones um so yeah I mean I wholeheartedly believe I the the old school or traditional way of interviewing or testing engineers where you can't reference yeah. you know, a stack overflow um just doesn't make sense doesn't make sense but then I guess I could count on my own point of Maybe if you work in a big bank and it's all very regulated and it needs to be just so and it has to be a certain way, then perhaps that style of working is necessary because you want people who are able to work within parameters. But in the startup world, it's not yeah. It's not going to work, is it? Yeah, you, you need a lot of people to wear a lot of hats to move yeah. in many different directions and you just need a 
fix things on the fly. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's get to flagship then, because of obviously what you're doing now, it's the new kind of baby for you. It's what, two, three years into it? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So where did the idea come from? And tell us a bit more about it. Yeah. So towards the end of 20, or towards the end of 2019 into 2020, um, I was still running ice. I was also at Afterpay. Um, Afterpay at the time had grown to a thousand staff company yeah and big data team by this point as well yeah 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 and also a dedicated digital marketing team yeah i wasn't doing digital marketing and big data team and what i realized was that i everyone was becoming more siloed yeah pigeonholed and that wasn't the way that i operated it it outgrown you in a way right let's be honest yeah exactly yeah and it actually coincided with um, my wife being pregnant with our first child. Cool. And I decided in that time, I was going to take some time off to, to kind of be a new dad. Um, and in that time, I just did some kind of contract work for a retailer here in Sydney, mm-hmm. just helping them with their e-com site. And um, what I realized very quickly was that as much as I've had so much data from an e-com perspective, they have no data in store. Mm. And every decision I've made um, has always been data-driven and every decision that they were made was being made on gut feel and intuition. Yeah. So you basically got two streams of retail that are meant to complement each other but are being operated on in complete opposite ways. Um, so I took those few months where, where I took a bit of time off and, and the goal for me was really how do I bring more tech more data more of the digital world into brick and mortar mm. and how do i ultimately let retailers treat their brick and mortar store like an e-com site sure uh, kind of small to medium retailers or are we talking big end of town as well so we started with a small to medium sure. um because i kind of said if i'm gonna burn bridges and get things wrong because there's <laughs> always gonna be mistakes <laughs> that i'd rather i know i, I learned through the afterpay journey that there are some brands that you get one shot with Sure. And if you miss that shot, you miss that shot. I can so, imagine. So um, I wanted to make sure that I didn't miss that shot with a brand that was too big. Yeah. Um, I've always had the mindset that we walk before you run. So we started small, more manageable brands that are more receptive to feedback, whereas the upper end of town, they expect everything kind of be ready, work out of the box, all the integrations, every, like no bugs. Um, so we started with the small guys, iterated, iterated, worked their feedback in. Um, and now we're starting to have conversations with, with the with the larger retailers, knowing that we've kind of solved. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the solution that I landed on originally, it went through a number of iterations to, to kind of refine um, how to solve for this for this challenge. And then we ended up going through a full pivot away from from that solution. Just so, like the pay on delivery and the. I, I, I think I think that was a closer pivot. Ours yeah. was a bit more monumental. Right. Okay. Cool. Uh, they they went from one payment method to another payment method. Yeah. We went from hardware to software. Oh wow. Yeah. Completely different. Yeah, then yeah. Quite, um, yeah. Quite a big shift. So originally, when I was standing in a retail store and I was watching customers interact with with the brand, I could see that every time they interacted with a the product, there was information to extract from that sure. action. You pick up an item off a rack that's information, you slide along a rack that's information, you take it to a fitting room that's information, yeah. if it goes to the fitting room, back onto the rack or back to the polish that's information. Um, so the first solution that we were looking at was um, was a smart coat hanger. 
Yeah, okay. Probably hang the weed, hang the item on it, and you can wash that throughout. Um, and the challenge there was that the hangers were expensive. <laughs> Retailers care about the aesthetic of their hanger, so we mm-hmm. have to have a custom hanger per retailer. Hangers get damaged. Um, items fall off the hanger. Um, and you're also limited to items that are exclusively hutch. Sure. So explored that for a little bit, realized that that wasn't really going to work. Um, and then we came across like BLE, so Bluetooth Low Energy mm-hmm. Devices. Um, where you could basically put a, a little Bluetooth device into an item. Yep. And you could track that item throughout a store. So we've gone from expensive to cheaper, still not cheap, but cheaper. And um, that is a, that enabled us to track items throughout a store. And then we ended up finding a company out of Israel that produced that same hardware that was a battery powered beacon mm-hmm. in the form of a sticker. Um, I actually ran an exercise for one of the retailers we're working with where I took the most recent store that they had opened mm. and I actually put a heat map, I created a heat map for them of their e-com customers in the surrounding area of that store before the store opened and after the store opened. And after the store opened, there was a spike in e-com customers in that area. So opening a store, you're not only getting the sales that of course, yeah, store, you're getting the flow on effect from an e-com sales that happened in the wider area. And I guess there's a natural assumption that someone who comes into the store, they know the brand, they know their mm. size, they know the style. Um, they'll they'll ha- naturally. I mean, there's, I don't have I don't need data. Let me data back this up. I'm making the assumption sure. that um, they would inherently have a, a lower return rate than mm. someone who's experiencing the brand or the product for the first time, yeah. um, where they're ordering two sizes because they don't know the size and they go re- they minimum going to return one. Um, so. Yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot of opportunity that exists in brick and mortar retail yep. um, for retailers. Um, there's been a lot of tech and innovation in the pure play and mm. digital space. Not a lot for the for the retail teams and the retail teams are often the ones that are forgotten about because brick and mortar is not sexy. Not sexy. Not anymore. Yeah, but it's coming back though, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's also not easy. Yeah. I mean, um, you we you launch a solution for e-com, you drop one line of code on the website, or you install an app on an e-com site, yeah. you're up and running and you're ready to go. Um, whereas for us, we have to train store teams, we have to interact with a lot of people. There's a lot more touch points to things yeah. for us. Um, so there's a lot more considerations from a brick and mortar perspective. Does flagship have like a specific? clientele or I suppose target market of we just want to do retailers we just want to do coffee shops is there any any limit to it or is it like we can use it anywhere any place yeah um through through the afterpay journey I saw how dominant the fashion industry is mm. and I saw through afterpay you you win fashion and beauty and you you're in your retail yeah um so that was that was my my focus um let's just focus on fashion um there are more regular collections, more regular drops, so it ties in really natively to what we're doing because you need to jump up that form more often. Um, but what we're finding is that our solution does solve problems for, for other retailers, for footwear, for toys, for um, cosmetics, mm. um, and for, in some cases, groceries. Um, so we're finding that there are, there are definitely applications outside of fashion retail. Thanks. Um, but we've got a, a limited team, so it's everything's about prioritization. Of course. Um, making sure we don't bite off more than we can chill. Like you said, walk before you can run and all exactly. the rest of it, right? Yeah. Exactly. You mentioned the US as well, Simon. Last time I was speaking, you plans to tip over there soon. What's the latest on that? I mean, that's the big market, right? You test here and then 
Exactly. Um, I actually I had this crazy thought um, a while ago um, to basically tackle the US market at the same time as Australia. Yeah, okay. The thing about the Australian market is that you we're a big enough market to work out and identify if something has merit and opportunity, mm. but we're small enough to fly under the radar. So you can build something here, test it, make sure it works, and then once it does work, then you can kind of go on to the, the big market. Um, what I found, though, was that um, the challenges that exist here for Australian retailers equally exist in the US for, for retailers over there. So rather than sitting on my hands and trying to make it work here, I've decided to, to fast-track the move over there um maybe naively prematurely um but i'm gonna go out and have a crack um so that's that's the plan at the moment you might as well go big if you're gonna do it right 100 percent. and what are you doing so i mean i know this is kind of a slight pivot but it's something that's been coming up a lot recently you're building a team here obviously startup style culture you're talking about the pull back to brick and mortar and people back are you pulling people into an office as well are you building a team that's quite core like that yeah, unintentionally, yeah. Mm. Um, I I basically haven't had a boss for the best part of uh, forever, really. Yeah. So, um, and I know that I've never really dropped the ball, and I've always kind of stayed on top of everything. So, um, I've kind of really wanted to give my team that same kind of luxury where they can be in control of of their own um, their own destiny and world, and yeah. Um, so we don't have a set number of days in the office, we're cool. flexible, but everyone genuinely enjoys each other's company. Yeah. Um, collaboration is inherently much easier in person. Mm-hmm. So it's ended up that everyone comes into the office probably three to four days a week. Nice. Um, but there's no hard and fast rule that people have to be in the office this day. So if someone's two days, you're not going to be like, Hey, Dave's turned up more than you. What are you doing? No. As yeah. long as, as long as people are producing the output that we need. Sure. Um, to the point where you'd have some remote if you wanted, or is that a bit too? I, I think, I think from an engineering perspective, the engineers mm. have worked really well collaboratively together. Um, I think like, we also get this R and D tax offset, mm. um, so um, remote probably wouldn't be out of Australia. It might be remote somewhere with sure. Australia. Um, we're definitely not closed off to it, um, but the the engineers have definitely worked a lot better. Um, in person together. That makes sense. Did you find the Einstein in Germany? In well, he's already got Einstein. The myth, the legend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. How are you comparing that to other people you're hearing about, Sean? I'm not really on the front line anymore hearing about stuff like that, but is is that quite unique, that kind of laissez-faire, yeah. do what you want, trust kind of way of working? Yeah, no. I'm a firm believer that being in the office, as I said, inherently more collaboration. Yeah. Actually, for us as recruiters, different world obviously to, to flagship but when I'm sitting at home I'm like what am I doing it reminds me of COVID yeah. want to get out want to socialise with people mm. the little things that you used to see online grab a coffee with your mate five minutes those type of things do mean a lot Yeah. Um, but we are seeing I suppose the last six months in particular companies mandating three four days in the mm-hmm. office yeah. there is still that bit of flex around if you need to do dentist appointment and yeah. his appointment obviously that's people's life you, you got to let them do it but yeah, there's, there's a lot more enforced to get people back into the office. I think some people have been let go from not wanting to do three, four days in offices. So it's definitely a big more uptick on it. But I'm, I'm a firm believer that you're going to, especially yeah. for a startup, right? You're going to get the best. I know. Yeah, my, my old business partner um, always used to use the 
frog in a fry pan analogy where if you have um if you're trying to put frogs into a fry pan and it's searing hot if you put them in they're going to jump straight out um whereas if you put them in a, a cooler fry pan and you slowly so turn up the heat then they're they're not going to realize that they're kind of being yeah until it's too late um and i've kind of had that mentality for a lot of things that i do that i i, I don't want to force anything on anyone sure um when people come to their own realization it op- it often sticks a lot more than for sure forced on them um so that kind of company mandate of three or four days a week like i understand it but i i feel like there's there's um there's a risk that it could do more harm than good um especially um you you've got an amazing talent um Let's, let's say for argument's sake, hypothetically, you've got the same engineer who can produce a week's worth of, of output in a single day. Yeah. Um, but the way that they work is one day in the office, four days from home. You're not going to send that person away, are you? Exactly. So yeah. you, I, I, I'm always like, for me, my responsibility is to understand every single person in my team and understand what makes them tick, what environment they need to get the most out mm-hmm. of them. Who works better for who works better earlier in the day? Who works better later at night? Yeah. Um, who works better with more framework? Who works better with less framework? And really try to, I guess, give everyone their own really unique um, work-life balance. And leading people in a way that they understand that they're getting what they need. So let's call the engineer Sophie, who's working from home, and she, that's what she needs. And then say you've got Bob who's in the office going, how come Sophie is working from home so much? And I'm in and you're like, well, you want the team lunch. That's your motivator and that gets you going. So we're going on that, but Sophie needs the, the time at home. So it's managing the relationships between those people as well to understand that actually you're all kind of getting what you want by being treated differently, right? 100%. Um, and, I, and what I found um, through COVID was these video platforms don't allow for a natural conversation mm. because when one person speaks, it moves the other person. There's their delays, so there's kind of that awkward back and forth until someone works out who's actually speaking. <laughs> well, well, the advice I gave someone today was if you're having a hard time with the bad news you got delivered, just minimize the screen so you're not looking at them, yeah. deliver the news, <laughs> yeah. and bring it back yes. up again, right? right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and you lose it. I feel like video calls these days are more transactional. Yeah. You jump on a call for a purpose, you get yeah. purpose, then you finish the call. Um, whereas you go for an in-person, we have an in-person meeting. I meet you guys, we have a brief yeah. before coming in. That's the day, you want a beer, you want a drink. Um, and then you sit down and then there's that informal conversation yeah. in between or waiting for things to get set up. How's the weekend? How are the kids? Do you up too much? Which yeah. you lose in a video call. For sure. Um, and I feel like a video call works if you've got the rapport, you've got the relationship and what you're aiming for is purely transactional. Of course. Um, but if you're trying to build a new relationship, if you're trying to, if you're a new starter, um, trying to bring someone to the team and it's exclusively remote, it is, it is challenging. Yeah. So um, like for me, it's, I want to create an environment that people actually want to be in the office yeah. where they, where they enjoy being in the office more than they enjoy being at home so that they want to come yeah, in. Yeah, for sure. What am I missing out in the office? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What, what bounty is there in the office? Yeah. Um, I'm also, um, I, I'm quite a big believer that there's not much productive that happens after lunch on a Friday. No. 
like you get to lunch on a Friday, most people are counting down, like looking at the clock, waiting for the weekend. And I said to my team, if you're in that situation where you're where you don't have anything that, that you need, a, you're on a deadline before by Friday night, um, and you're just carried down the clock, go home. Just go home yeah. early. Yeah, I'd rather you go home and come back fresh on Monday rather than slog through the rest of the day. Yeah. Have a bit of a weekend and come back but still at fifty percent on Monday. Now I have yeah. two. Actually, just this weekend, I was out with some friends and two stories just based on that. One guy runs a panel beating shop, which is not a place you'd think for innovative working ways right and if you're not beating panels you're not making money he's just let his guys finish at one o'clock on a friday because they get in now 6 a.m friday they go real hard all thursday all friday they've done exactly the same amount of productivity and they all get to go home at one by monday they're ready to go exactly on the flip side i had a friend who reduced their hours for reduced pay and got really annoyed because the amount of emails and work that was coming through to them on a Friday when they were off getting paid less yeah. was like 2% of the week's work. Yeah. So they just went, screw it, I'm going back full pay and just yeah. doing what everyone else is doing, you know? So yeah, it's it's definitely, I like what you're saying about just creating that environment where just do what you think is right for you and just make sure you're delivering yeah. and we're all going to be fine. Exactly. It's definitely evolved over the last couple of years as well. Like five years ago, that would be unheard of. I can yeah. remember an old manager of mine, I won't say any names, but he used to walk out the office on a Friday at 10 to 5. He's supposed to be finished at 5. Clocking off early, is it? Don't yeah. It's like, all that stuff. so changed now. It's yeah. like, once people are doing the work, they're there. You just annoy people by doing that. 100%. Yeah. yeah. 100%. But I guess, look, obviously, we're a 30-person company. You're a small yeah. business. It's easy to do it. You know. Right. Yeah. We can we can sit and tell everyone how to do it. But then if you're like a 200,000-person company, <laughs> it's a different story. 100%. Right, well, we better start wrapping up because we could literally be here for two hours, but <laughs> we better actually wrap this up. It's been super interesting and your story is, is very different to what we normally hear about, you know, on this podcast, which is fantastic. So um, this podcast also, for your benefit, is a really good thing to share with people who are thinking about working for you because yeah. it tells them who you are as well. Um, but just for that benefit, I guess, just to our network, why would people want to work for you? Why would people want to work for your company? What's exciting? Like, what's your kind of pitch? You know? Yeah. Um, I would say the, the, the biggest thing there is I don't say anyone works for me, sure. with me. That's, I guess, the biggest fundamental difference between like our company and other companies that I see that I have a different role to other people in the team. Um, I bring a different skill set. I've got different responsibilities, but my responsibilities are no more or less important than anyone else's in the team. So um, I'm very big on, on um, everyone having their domain authority, everyone um, be able to kind of make their own calls. I, I don't look at, I don't micromanage. I say to the engineering team, this is your domain. I trust that you've got to control my product team. I trust you've got to mm. control. Um, and I, I'm a big advocate of, I don't know what I don't know. And I'm not going to try and try and pretend that I'm, that I'm an expert or something, something that I'm not. Mm. Um, and the, the thing for me is it's my responsibility to, create a working environment that works for everyone in the team. Um, and I guess it's similar to, a, to an e-com perspective where um, different people want different different experiences. That's where personalization comes into it. Um, and two realities can simultaneously be true. Huh. Um, I've got someone in my team who prefers to come in at 7 a.m. and come in when no one's in the office, then he might leave a little bit earlier than everyone else because he's front-loaded the work. No. Um, I've got someone else who prefer to, prefer to sleep in, come a bit later and work a bit later and work when he gets home. And, yeah. and both those people have got 
very first of all they're, they're amazing contributors to the team but they've got different working styles and it's my responsibility to create a work environment that allows for them both to work the way that works for them and also work for for the company so um, I spend a lot of time understanding my team, what makes them tick, what their goals are, how they best operate. Um, and I try and put as much of a framework in place so that everyone can kind of get the most out of themselves. That sounds like a great place to work. <laughs> You're building something pretty cool there, mate. Um, well, anything else from you, Sean, before we wrap it up, mate? Anything else for me? I think there's always the, the data joke, is there? Oh, what, did, did you reckon he's brought one with him? Did you bring your, your favorite <laughs> data joke? <laughs> <laughs> Have you got one up your sleeve, Sean? Is that why you want to do it before oh, we go? I Googled one before. <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> Pick the funniest one I found. All right, go on then, Sean. We're going to get on the spot. Well, why don't we start uh, with your joke then, Sean? Um, <laughs> two, two, sequel, two sequel heads walk into a bar. Every table is full. They walk up to the closest table. What do they say? What? Hey, can I join you? <laughs> <laughs> you know that now you know when you laugh like that, right? I'm literally dying inside. You're like, yeah, that is good. That's a great one. Not non-original. Not original, no, obviously. Did you bring one with you? It's not it's not a it's not a dated joke. Um, but for a long time, like my brother actually got me a t-shirt and I'd wear it to the office periodically. Um, and the teacher just said, um, data models over dating models <laughs> and, and so it's not it's not a data joke but it's um i forgot the, i got the, i got the t-shirt somewhere in the photo somewhere but, nice it, it, yeah it's very like very i'm 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 big into my it's my data models nice well on that bombshell mate anything else for me before we let you finish up uh no this is this has been great um yeah, I, I think um, the, there's, there's a lot of opportunity in the world, not yeah. just in what we're doing, um, to tap more into, into data. Um, and you're seeing it more and more in, in a lot of industries that you might not have thought data existed in. Um, I know we're kind of out of time, but coming back to like a lot, of, lot more data in sport. Yeah. Data in oh, oh, on that, which, sport, which fantasy sports are you, like, you, you really into? Um, Fantasy EPL and Fantasy NRL. Yeah, okay. I NRL quit EPL. Sorry? I quit EPL. Right. It's about 15 years of realizing I'm distinctly mediocre. Every single year, I'm mid-table. I'm like, I'm fed up. <laughs> I'm not doing it anymore. Like, I'm 10 years ago. No. <laughs> so I had that same experience with my NRL fantasy. And I went on Upwork, got someone overseas to scrape like the last 10 years worth of NRL data for me. And every week I'd put two, two I'd pump it into to a SQL database and had all these queries running. <laughs> and I'd pick two teams and it would tell me in that match who mm. was most likely to score based on your score historical nice. And I used that from a fantasy perspective. And then every week I would pick these players, every week these guys would smash it, yeah. Um, and then I was like, oh, I wonder if I can use this for betting purposes. But then I'd jump on, on sports bet and see that their odds were really short. So yeah, because they know the same. Exactly, yeah, 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 100%. Did you win your fantasy leagues based on that data? Um, it took me a while to yeah. really refine the, the approach and the data. There were some data points that I used that didn't end up working. So it's all iterative, What what which model works the best. So yeah. Now, I've, I think in the last four years, I've made three grand finals and two premierships. It's Starting to work. Start, well, yeah, more than starting to yeah, work. It's pretty yeah. good. Well, how many leagues you're in though? There's that's the that's other data point. Oh wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So we're getting there. I only play NFL now, fantasy, because I just love it and it's fun and it 
helps me watch the games. But yeah, I'm done with fantasy football. <laughs> my sister-in-law actually, I finally got out and then my sister-in-law went home over summer and she went, I've just been dragged into this fantasy football thing. I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm managing her team now. Oh my God. And I'm like, I'm trying to get away from this thing. <laughs> so anyway. All right, well, on that, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on and uh, good luck with all your endeavours. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. We'll smash in.